I didn't set out to do this as a business. I set out to manifest the vision I had for a compassionate world. And this is what it looks like for me based on what I love and what I'm good at. Welcome to the Business for Good podcast, a show where we spotlight companies making money by making the world a better place. I'm your host, Paul Shapiro, and if you share a passion for using commerce to solve many of the world's most pressing problems, then this is the show for you. Welcome, friends, to episode 47 of Business for Good. I hope you enjoyed the last episode about Goodwill's business model. I appreciate it, especially those of you who told me that you are now getting your dog toys from Goodwill. Certainly a win for the planet to avert new toys from having to be made, and a win for your furry friends who now get even more toys since they are only 99 cents each. Now, normally on this podcast, we focus on for-profit companies using innovative commerce to solve serious social problems. Last time, however, it was, of course, about a nonprofit organization using commerce to help the homeless. And this time, we're going to focus on another non-traditional type of business, the life of a solopreneur. That is to say, the life of a business person who isn't trying to build a team and grow into a huge company, but rather someone who goes it alone and makes a business work essentially all by themselves. In this case, the solopreneur who will be sharing her tips is a longtime friend of mine and someone I admire very much, Colleen Patrick Gaudreau. If you're interested in the plant-based world, you likely already know her name since Colleen is essentially a brand unto herself, often known as The Joyful Vegan. In fact, The Joyful Vegan is the name of her latest and seventh book. A longtime advocate for pragmatic and friendly animal advocacy, Colleen has built her own empire of revenue streams that allow her to earn money by putting out a positive message of compassion and joy into the world. Many people who want to promote animal-friendly eating may think about going to work for an animal charity, or maybe they want to go work in the for-profit space at a company making alternative protein. Those are, of course, very cool things to do. But Colleen has for decades now successfully charted a different path of advocacy and has made a good business out of doing so. Whether it's earning revenue from her books on vegan eating, from sponsored vegan-friendly vacations that you can go on with her, from online cooking classes and more, Colleen has a truly diversified approach to ensuring her own living while while urging the rest of us to adopt a live and let live mentality toward other animals too. As you'll hear in this interview, Colleen really was an influencer long before there was social media. She was collecting small contributions from fans of her work long before there was Patreon. She was podcasting for animals long before most people even knew what a podcast was. And she was writing plant-based cookbooks of which she's now sold more than a quarter million copies long before there was an internet full of unlimited limited plant-based resources. In other words, Colleen really is an OG of the plant-based advocacy world. So enjoy listening to her story of how she got started and how she's made her business of advocating for compassion for animals work for so long. I now give you my friend, Colleen Patrick Goodrow. Colleen, welcome to the Business for Good podcast. I'm honored to be here, Paul. It is my honor. You are one of my favorite people to talk to. Uh, that's so nice of you. Well, I, you know, the cat is out of the bag. I don't know if that's an anti-animal expression or not, but the cat is yeah. out of the bag because we are, uh, we've been friends for a long time and we have done other podcast interviews with each other on you are not one, but you are two podcasts, <laughs> uh, which are quite good. So, uh, before we get started here, learning all about how this all came to be, what are your two podcasts coming? Uh, so food for thought and animology. Okay, so what do you discuss aside from clean meat on Food for Thought? (laughs) Uh, So Food for Thought really talks about everything related to living a compassionate life, how we eat, how we speak, how we, uh, how we live, how, you know, basically living as compassionately and healthfully as possible. Um, So obviously tackling food and cooking and you know, just everything related nutrients, um, but also culture and history and talked a lot about language and food for thought. And that's why I did the spinoff podcast. And so the spinoff podcast is animology. And that's about the animal related words and expressions we use. Uh, and, and as you know, and we will let everyone know now that you and I both share many interests in life, but words and the origins of words is, is certainly uh, something that, that we share uh, quite a lot. And so I've enjoyed animology and, and learning about uh, in fact, I was just telling uh, somebody, I forget who, about uh, the connection of mouse to muscle, which is a pretty interesting connection. So why don't, why don't you tell folks, what, what is the connection, Colleen, between mouse uh, and muscle? 
Yeah, I didn't expect that. I love that. So yeah, the the word uh, mus, M-U-S, uh, is the Greek word. It goes back to Proto-Indo-European languages, uh, means mouse. And so the word uh, muscle uh, comes from the word for mouse. The, uh, the person who coined the word muscle, um, apparently, we don't know exactly why, uh, the movement of a muscle uh, under your skin reminded him of the movement of a mouse hmm. uh, under a blanket, moving under a blanket kind of thing. So that idea of a muscle moving reminded him of a mouse moving. And that's how we have the word muscle. And I was just listening to a podcast on on battlefields and it was they were talking about Musgrove in uh, in the UK and they were talking about what it could possibly mean. And the, uh, the person who knew said, actually, it means a, a place where mice are, Musgrove. Um, it's the field of mice because the word yep, M-U-S, moose, huh. uh, meant m- mouse. Interesting. Yeah. Well, uh, at, at work, at, at my work at the Better Meat Co., we were recently debating about the term break a leg because, you know, you tell people break a leg before they go perform, which is a very odd thing to do. And so we were debating what is the origin of this bizarre expression? And uh, some people theorized that, uh, well, not theorized, they looked up on Google and found a variety of different answers, one of which is apparently the um, the curtains used to be drawn in such a way that if you would, when they were drawn, they looked like legs as people call them legs. So if you got a chance to go out and perform on stage, it was called breaking a leg. Like you're going to break the leg and you're going to get to go out and perform and do your act on stage. Other people said it went back to Shakespeare and they found all these different things. So if anybody knows uh, the real origin of break a leg, I would love to know. So contact me uh, afterwards. You can go to businessforgoodpodcast.com and, and send me a message uh, via there. But uh, I, Colleen, I, I presume you do not know since there's no animal related origin. Presumably, I, I hope there isn't an animal related origin to break a leg. Well, no, I mean, and I'm no expert in language, and but but I'm not interested only in animal-related words and expressions. Uh, so my favorite <laughs> podcasts are language podcasts, and so uh, um, and I and I do know from listening to a lot of language experts that the answer that sounds the cutest and the quaintest is usually the wrong answer. So <laughs> uh, so just know that when looking for the derivations of expressions and words, if it's, <laughs> if it's too cute, if it's too perfect, it's probably not true, and people just don't know. <laughs> what the origins are yeah yeah maybe maybe nobody knows the origins but i hope somebody will send me something cool on this because it has been the topic of of real discussion and and even debate at my own workplace so uh, of course i haven't even taken the time to google it so shame on me but anyway so that's cool calling that you have these two podcasts but that is really uh, a tiny little sliver if you look at a pie chart a pie chart at the life of calling patrick Gaudreau, i'm sure that podcasting is a minuscule sliver of it because you have created quite a business empire as a solopreneur. You are a an author. And uh, the last time I checked, I think I had read that you've sold over a quarter million books now. Is that accurate? Am I, am I correct in that? I Perhaps something like that. Something like that. Okay. So if I'm off by an order of, of you know, of, of magnitude, that, that would not be good. So I'm thinking it was like a quarter million, but I know you've sold a lot of books. How many books have you written? It seems like quite a lot. Seven. Seven. So, uh, you know, most authors never can aspire to uh, reach that type of success, but it's not just authorship. You have a whole variety of uh, of revenue streams in your life for the business that you're running by yourself. And so before we get to that, I just wanted to talk about how it came to be. You know, many people who are in either the animal welfare or the humane community, they certainly know your name. And whether they've used your books or whether they have listened to your podcasts or seen you on social media, lots of people know who you are. But unlike many other folks, you don't work at an organization. You've never worked at an animal protection organization. In fact, you've always been treading the life of a solopreneur. So how did it come to pass originally, Colleen, that you got interested in animals and animal advocacy? And then let's go on to talk about why you made this different type of a decision that rather than working for a nonprofit organization, you decided to really start your own business that was a one-person show. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, so it goes back quite quite a bit now. Uh, so this would have been, I don't even know, probably in the 90s, early 90s, 
I don't even know if you were born yet, Paul. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I was born in the 90s for sure, for sure. Uh, to be honest, I was born in the 70s, but that's okay. <laughs> yeah, probably late 70s. So um, so I, it would have been in the 90s. And, you know, look, my I'd, I really hate, I hesitate to say this because I don't want to sound like because I want, I always want to provide value to what I'm sharing about my experience so that people can replicate what might be inspiring to them for, in their own experience, in their own lives. Uh, but I will say that I always had an inclination from a very young age that I wanted to do something good in the world. I just didn't know what it was going to look like. I didn't know what it was going to be. I had no idea. It had different iterations in my mind, certainly when I was young. Uh, when I was very young, I wanted to be a veterinarian because I loved animals, right? So just, you know, kind of the obvious thing someone might think of if they love animals. Um, I wanted to do good work in the world and I was raised Catholic. So I knew of the only people I knew who, right, you know, kind of were characterized as doing good work in the world were like the nuns I was, you know, in contact with every day in school. So there was a short period of time when I was very young and I wanted to be a nun. Um, but that was probably a very short period of time. But it was because I associated like them, that with just good goodness, good work, right? And so that I always had an inclination toward that. Uh, so as I started getting older and it really was about, okay, well, what are you going to study and what are you going to do? What are you really going to do? I did not go into medicine. I did not go into veterinary medicine. I was always very interested in stories, narrative, language, literature, uh, film. And so I started pursuing uh, film first and then, uh, and then literature and it started becoming very clear. Now, by then, I was already what I would have called an animal advocate. I was advocating in my very small ways as a lone advocate back in New Jersey. I didn't know anybody else who was an animal advocate. I didn't know anybody else who was a vegetarian. I was pescatarian first and then vegetarian. Uh, but I just kept you know, at it, just kept thinking, well, I want to be part of a solution. I know that animals are suffering. I want to do something good for them. And so by the time I was in undergrad, I was getting a bachelor's in you know, English literature. Um, I, I, was, I was not sure what I wanted to do, but by the time I went to grad school, I was pretty clear that what I loved and what I was good at could be married and could be, um, I could create something from that. And so I didn't know what it was going to look like. So I I thought I was going to go teach university level. I thought I was going to go on and do that, but I got very jaded in grad school. And so knew I wasn't going to go the traditional teaching route because I didn't like the idea that someone would be giving me a curricula that I'd have to follow and teach exactly what someone else told me to do. And so I was also very willful from a very young age. <laughs> so my personality was also such that I knew I always wanted to do something on my own. And that I wanted to be the creative force behind it, that I wanted to be, that I wanted to manifest my own vision. And so that didn't mean I didn't, you know, appreciate what already existed and learn from what, what I was also interested in literature and, and, and this and that, but I didn't want to lock myself into teaching literature. I wanted to keep reading literature and use that to, to inform me and my, and my work. But I just knew that I was good enough at writing. I loved it. I loved to write. Um, I loved reading. I loved learning and I loved teaching, but not in the traditional conventional way, I should say, not in the conventional, uh, you know, academic way. And so those things informed the questions I just kept asking myself, which is, I don't know what this is going to look like, but I know I want to do something to help animals. I know I want to do something to help people help animals and to help them just live the best life they could. And so I don't know what it's going to look like, but what am I good at? And what do I love? And I kept asking those questions. And honestly, that has guided me through everything that I continue to do. What do I love? What am I good at? And, and what, where's the need? Right. And so what happened? I decided after grad school that that was going to be my path. And so when we were moving from New Jersey to California, I did start looking at animal organizations because I needed something to, you know, pay the bills, obviously. And my husband was in technology. Um, he wasn't my husband yet, but we were moving out to California together. This is in 98. And he was looking at tech companies and it was during the dot-com boom. And I was looking at animal organizations <laughs> and, uh, and didn't know, you know, but I just knew I'll, I'll work for an animal organization. And I was pretty close to working for one, but I 
made the right decision to, to change my mind there and, uh, and just said, I want to just do something on my own. So that's kind of a long version of how I got to the place where I started to build what I, what I built, but I didn't, I didn't immediately get into animal at, um, the work that I, that I'm doing now. I mean, I can keep going if you want, but, (laughs) but it was, that was the direction that I just kept pointing myself toward is what do I, what am I good at? What do I love? Sure. So, you know, I guess it's queer what you love. And then you're talking about being good at things like literature, but that doesn't necessarily translate into saying, hey, I'm going to become a a cookbook author, or Mm -hmm. I'm going to become an influencer because you really were an influencer before there was social media. Uh, you know, you were like a brand unto yourself in many ways before there was this such a, a rise of these social media influencers. And so what led you to think, hey, instead of working for an animal protection organization or even maybe working for a company that, you know, if you think back then about the plant-based meat companies like Boca and Morningstar and, and so on, um, like, why go this path? Why do you decide to start your own business that would be a one-person business? So. By doing what was right in front of me and realizing what I was, what I was good at. So the thing that was right in front of me, so, you know, it doesn't, it's not to say that I didn't do a couple of things that I realized uh, I don't, I'm not comfortable with that. I don't want to do that or I'm not good at that. But what I started doing very quickly. So interestingly, I was actually part of a Unitarian church here in Oakland and it's a, you know, they're very social justice oriented, the Unitarians. And so that was one of the things that drew me to that that place. And the reason I started looking for anything is because we were moving out here. I didn't know anybody and I wanted to have some kind of community. And so being a very social justice oriented and very, very literature and music oriented place, uh, we started going there. And, and indeed that's where I really cut my teeth in advocacy, but again, on my own. And so I started I kind of became very quickly known as the animal person there. Uh, Mm. And so I started leafleting. I started um, putting literature out uh, during the coffee hour. I would start, then it became a table I had. And there was already a larger organization at the time it was called um, UFIDA. At the time it was called Unitarian Universalist for the Ethical Treatment of Animals. I think they've Mm. changed that now. I think it's the Animal Ministry or something like that. I was going to say UFIDA, not not a good acronym. Not a good acronym, exactly. Mm. And I... uh, and I, I don't know what it's called today. I'm not part of, I'm not part of the, that church uh, anymore, but at the time it was the perfect, you know, kind of a captive audience, if you will, for me to start doing what just felt natural to me, which was just education. So when you said, yeah, you, how do you, how are you good at literature? I realized that I loved just sharing ideas, sharing thoughts, answering questions, learning making sure I knew the answers to the questions that people asked me. So I'd be tabling, there'd be literature about everything related to animal abuse and exploitation, everything, just name it, right? I mean, you know, vivisection, testing and, uh, you know, habitat destruction and, and, you know, factory farming and all of it. And so people would ask me questions and I loved engaging with people. I love talking to people and I love communication. And so that was how it kind of started. And so I realized I was really good at that. We worked a lot with the youth group. So we were like the the leaders for the youth group. We would take them to animal sanctuaries. Of course, many of them became vegetarian and then vegan. Some of them are still vegan. I'm still in touch with some of those. They were kids then. I'm still in touch with them today as adults. Um, So I started doing that. Uh, The thing that probably was the main thing that made me realize this is what I really love is I actually created and led a whole service. And it was an it was all on animals. It was all related to animal animals. Um, and so when I gave that, you know, kind of my main talk, it was when it was just, it just validated that I love communicating about this. And of course, writing is something I'd always already loved and, and was, you know, fair enough at. And so, uh, yeah, so that's how it started. And so I started teaching cooking classes in that church and I had no culinary training I knew more than the people coming to the class. That's probably about all I could say. And I was passionate. I mean, passion plays a huge part in my work and in the work of many people, right? Passion was a huge part of it. And so people would come to the cooking classes. And again, I'd love talking about these issues. I love food. I mean, I've always loved creating things and I love feeding people. I love... um, I love nurturing people through food. So it wasn't like I'd, I've never had the inclination to be involved. Like I don't see myself as a, 
chef and I don't see myself, I do not see myself as a chef. So people are like, would you ever open a restaurant? Absolutely not. <laughs> like that's not how I see myself, but I use food as a means through which to talk about these larger issues that I care about, you know, animal advocacy, health, well-being, uh, food justice, um, agri- you know, just growing food, uh, you know, the culinary arts. I mean, so I, I care about it, but I use food as a means through which to talk about those things. And so that's, that's how I started getting involved with food. And then I, uh, I, I made a DVD, uh, right? So like, I mean, again, because it's for me as, as the solo, you know, I, again, I always knew I wanted to do something on my own and for myself. So I was like, okay, I'm reaching people coming to the classes in Oakland, but I want to scale it. And this is before the internet. So how do I scale it? Let me make a DVD. Mm. I was pretty sophisticated at the time. I raised <laughs> 20 thousand dollars to make a dvd can you imagine today you just need your phone and you can make this gorgeous video i raised the money to to shoot this dvd and we shot it over three days now um, and, colleen how yeah. did you raise twenty thousand dollars and I, I presume was this like in in the 90s the 2000s like what when when did this happen first of all yeah, this would have been early 2000s. And by okay. then I was involved with um, another advocate. Her name was Alka Chana. You know yeah, Alka. The, the uh, compa- yeah, I love Alka, the Compassionate Cooks. I had your DVD. Trust me, I'm very familiar. <laughs> but how, how, did, how did you, did you raise $20,000 from investors, from donors? Like how did you get 20 grand to make a DVD in the early 2000s? So at the time, um, so we raised some money from some uh, nonprofit organizations, you know, foundations. So we had raised, I think, maybe five or 10 from them. And then um, there was an amazing advocate. Her name was Polly here in the Bay Area. And um, Alka was very dear friends with her. And Polly died of cancer. And she left Alka, like, I think, a little bit of money. She didn't have a lot, but she left her some money and Alka donated that um, to the project uh, in Polly's name. So, and then I think there were some individual... um, contributions as well. So crowdfunding, truly, uh, before mm. there were, you know, I mean, people were crowdfunding long oh, before. Right. <laughs> so this was not $20,000 that anybody was expecting to get a return on. This was $20,000 that were donated to you for the purpose of making this DVD for people who wanted to see plant-based eating go more mainstream. That's right. And yeah, we cool. sold the DVD where they weren't, we didn't give it away. I mean, so, mm. you know, we, we, you know, did, made money. Sure. Yeah. We made some money on the DVD, but it was with that purpose of, you know, again, as a business model mm-hmm. of, of, you know, of, um, this is a value we're giving people are paying money for that value. And so mm-hmm. you get the money in exchange. Obviously yeah. there were lots of costs involved. So there wasn't, a, it wasn't a huge money-making venture because the physical DVDs and the physical, the design we had, you know, we paid for, um, and shooting in and all of that. So we did, you know, so it wasn't like a huge return, but it was, it was something mm. and it was the beginning yeah. of, Oh, wait a second. There's a way to do this and, uh, and make it feasible and make it, uh, make, you know, create a revenue, uh, from it. Um, and the classes were that for me as well. I mean, I can't, do you you remember, uh, do you remember Colleen, how many DVDs you sold? Oh God. How many did we print? I mean, 5,000 maybe. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I I remember in 2001, uh, at the time I was working at a nonprofit organization called compassion over killing. And we did an undercover investigation at a factory farm and we made VHS tapes. And I remember we printed a thousand of them. We didn't even have, we didn't have an office in my apartment, which is a one bedroom apartment, which I was living in with my then girlfriend and our dog and her art studio. I mean, it was like this apartment (laughs) was, uh, you know, not a lot of, not a lot of empty space. And, uh, we put all 1000 of those VHS tapes in my apartment and we sold them and we made this documentary about the investigation and we sold them. And I remember when we sold the 1000th VHS, I said to uh, my colleague, uh, my, my friend and my colleague, Mian Park. And I I said to her, I was like, I cannot believe that 1000 people have watched this. And maybe if they showed it to a friend, maybe even 2000 people have watched it. And I was like, just so blown away that, you know, that a thousand or 2000 people might've seen this. And of course now, Mm -hmm. you know, you put a video on on YouTube and if you got that, you would consider it a complete dud. And so, you know, the point is like, it's it's just so dramatically different now. And I can imagine um, with you making these DVDs, uh, you know, 5,000 of them to you at that time must've seemed 
like a really tremendous advancement to sell 5,000 DVDs. For sure. It was huge. It was huge. But what, but what I realized also very quickly was it's the business part that just, you just need, like it, it's everything. I mean, you have to have a plan, the marketing, the distribution, like it's intense. I mean, just Mm -hmm. all of that. And obviously for people who are mind, you know, business minded and want to do that, that's so exciting. And someone else may have, you know, run with that and made a business out of that alone. But for me, it was a tool for my advocacy and I just wanted to do more of that, but in a more sustainable way. So it was, I was super excited about it. And of course, being someone who's just always wanting to act, act, act and do the next question was, okay, what's next? What do I want to, what's next? And so I'd sat down with, uh, with the, the guys I had hired, the producers and uh, director and uh, sound guys, like guys would become very good friends. And I said, you know, what do you I want to do? Like, it's, you know, the internet was starting to kind of come about now. And I just, it just didn't make sense to make another DVD. It was expensive, it's a physical thing. And uh, so did I ever tell you this? This is great. So the, Mark said to me, he said, you, uh, he said, you know, I, I get that you don't want to do another DVD. That makes a lot of sense. Really what you should do is you should start a podcast. And I said, I think that's a brilliant idea. And my husband is a musician on the side. And so he had a microphone. I said, so would that be what I need? He goes, yes. And I said, he's got like a little sound, you know, little sound thing, audio thing. Uh, Do I need, like that would help, right? And he goes, yeah, yeah. I'm like, I think it's brilliant. That's really fantastic. One question, what's a podcast? (laughs) I didn't really know what a podcast was, but I knew it was a way to get my message out and to talk and share these ideas. And so I started doing Food for Thought in, was it 2006? Wow. It's when I started long, that podcast. Long, long before the podcast <laughs> boom. I think back then in 2006, the only person who I knew who regularly listened to podcasts was Bruce Friedrich. And he, <laughs> remember he, uh, now who is the executive director of the Good Food Institute. Uh, but back then he was doing other things with his life. And he was telling me about how he spends all of his bike rides listening to podcasts. And I remember thinking, one, that seems dangerous. Um, and then two, I was like, <laughs> you know, what is this? I didn't even know what it was, Um, but you were doing it. So good for you. Yeah. And Bruce's audio, I remember his was a veganism in a nutshell. Oh yeah. Well, yeah, that was, yeah. He did that like as a, as like a DVD, I think, or like a, some audio thing. Audio CDs. Yeah. CDs. Um, Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. But his his podcast consumption to my recollection, it was like political type things. It was, you know, things about politics is my recollection of what he was listening to, but we'll confirm with him. Yeah, there just wasn't a lot. I mean, it was, I've always loved the audio medium. I've always loved radio. Uh, So it was just another alignment of, again, what I felt was in my sweet spot in terms of what I love. I love, and I loved oration. I love oration. I still do. And so my podcast is probably still very unique. I mean, I, there are many, plenty that do do it the way I do it, but mine has only ever been, you know, basically spoken word, me. Uh, And I write, out uh, basically an essay and uh, and then I record it. I mean, so my podcast from the very beginning and they still are, uh, it's really oration. And mm. that's something I've always loved. And that's what I found knew I wanted to keep doing when I spoke during that service, uh, you know, many years uh, before that. So it was another thing that I just thought, uh, yep, this is what I'm good at. I'm not good at a lot of things, but here's one. And so that's how I started doing the podcast. And then what started happening, and this is the fun part of the story, <clears throat> people started sending me like money like in the mail, like dollars, bills, coins, because they were so moved by what I was sharing in the podcast. And they started, you know, making changes in their own lives and were moved by the content and moved by the work and didn't know how else to thank me other than giving me money. Amazing. Uh, it was amazing. It was such a beautiful gesture. And it it's really informed. I mean, it, it validated and informed and still informs the way I think about money, which is it's an exchange. It's an exchange of value. You, you, it's value for value. And, and so, so is this the yeah. first time that you started thinking there may actually be a real business in doing this? Or yes. have you been thinking? Okay. So you, so people start sending you money unsolicited 
And yes. I mean, it's, it's almost like Patreon before Patreon, but with yes. actual hard cash in the mail. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so now you're sitting there uh, pulling in what I would imagine is a modest amount of money and thinking, geez, if, no, if I'm not even asking for anybody to pay and they're just sending it to me unsolicited, maybe there's a business here. So how did that lead you then to go on to create this empire, like a constellation of revenue streams that you have now? And let me just tell us, like, what are the revenue streams that you have now? So uh, obviously there's authorship, but what else is part of the Colleen Patrick Goudreau entity? Well, let's get there because I think that it's fun to unfold mm-hmm. it because it's still, it's part of this larger narrative of, mm-hmm. of asking the questions and then getting the answers and then making it happen. And mm-hmm. so, but I will tell you that my tax accountant says that she doesn't know anybody else who has like the number of revenue streams that I have. <laughs> and that doesn't, it doesn't mean it, it's like a fortune. It just means that like, there's a lot, there's a number of them. And it also means that in a time like this with the, with the pandemic, uh, where one completely stopped short, I, we can't do, uh, the trips, uh, I at least can, I have others. So I, it's not, I'm not dependent on just one. And, And, uh, and, and, and for people who don't know what the trips are, we will get to the trips because I know that those are, I believe your number one source of revenue actually. So, uh, but tell, but keep going in the story, Colleen. Like, so you're, you're getting this money in the mail and you're thinking maybe there's a business. Do you decide you're going to create an LLC? Like, is there a joyful, is there a joyful vegan incorporated? Like, or is it all just like sole proprietor, your own, uh, your own money coming into you personally. Right. And so let me, let me make this clear too. I was working for a nonprofit at the time. It wasn't an animal nonprofit, but I was working for an organization. I was a content director. Uh, and that, that's, that's a whole different story about how that happened, but it was also incredibly serendipitous. And it was a response to the question I had been asking of what, what do I love and what am I good at? And it was, it it became a, it was a hobby I was doing, uh, an activism, like philanthropic hobby that turned into a job. So I really, enjoyed the work I was doing with this nonprofit. And, uh, I was there for five or six, five, five years, probably five years. So I was building all of this while I was working there. So the, you know, the, the small change I was getting from the podcast listeners and the money I was making from the cooking classes was was supplementary. And it was very much because it was enabling me to see that there could be a business because I, uh, but, but luckily I could, figure that out while I was working full-time at this nonprofit. So I was building all of this. I was doing the cooking classes. I was doing the podcast. I was doing the DVD. And basically I was working two jobs. I mean, that's really what I was doing. So one of the things I always tell people who, who want to, to do the thing they want to do and, but how can I leave my job? And I can't leave my job. I need to pay you know, the mortgage or the rent or what have you. And I'm like, of course you shouldn't leave your job. Like there's responsibilities you have and you have to stay in your job, but you might have to work two jobs while you build the thing that you want to do. And that's what I did. And so the fun thing is I stayed longer at that job than I should have because I was afraid. I was like, how am I going to make money? How am I going to make money with the change that I'm getting from the podcast and the cooking classes. How would I possibly make money and survive and pay bills and that kind of thing? And, um, and so, uh, guess what? I would, the, the organization restructured didn't need me anymore. And I had to figure it out and I probably would have been able to figure it out on my own, but I was too afraid to leave. And so when I, when I was forced to leave, which was the best thing that ever happened to me, I made a deal with myself and David and I talked about it. My husband and I talked about it. I'll give myself six months and I'll see if I can build enough of a revenue to, you know, to create a salary for myself. And if at the end of that six months, I haven't succeeded, then I will go pursue working for an animal organization. Wow. And so, so it's, six months has turned made. into uh, 15 years now. Is that, would that be accurate? Yeah. yeah. Wow. That's right. Mm-hmm. So what happens? So, all right, you've been let go of your job, which you're of course, probably uh, not too thrilled by, but in hindsight, something that's pretty awesome that happened to you. And then what? Yeah, I was so happy. My husband, when I called him after the meeting, he said, I'm so sorry. I'm like, are you kidding? This is like the best thing because <laughs> I knew it. So so I knew that it just was pushing me to do the, the thing that I had been kind of avoiding. So I looked to other organizations that had, I had already talked to some other organizations like PCRM, Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine. At the time, they had started something called the Cancer Project. I think they call it something else now, but they started doing cooking classes for people who wanted to uh, prevent cancer. And so 
was all plant-based classes. And then Dr. McDougall, obviously, uh, who, you know, teaches and he uh, has a whole program up in Santa Rosa, and this wasn't very far from me. Uh, he had asked me to teach cooking. Because again, I was already establishing my reputation as someone who was teaching cooking. I had done the DVD, probably, you know, I had a relationship with these people already. And so I said, okay, well, let me hire myself out. And so I basically contracted myself to the Cancer Project, to uh, Dr. McDougall, kept teaching my own classes. I think there may have been a couple other uh, things involved. And so I kind of really broke out and did more cooking uh, classes. At the same time, I uh, was... uh, approached by a publisher who wanted to publish a, uh, a baking, a vegan baking book. And that's how the cookbook started. Mm-hmm. I never, ever thought that I would write a cookbook. Like again, literature was my forte and, and, and language and the arts. And I just thought I, I, that would, that was never even on my mind, but again, in service of my, my intention of what I wanted to do, of what I was setting out to do, of why I was doing this in the first place of using it as a tool and as a means uh, through which I could communicate these ideas again about compassion and eating healthfully and, and, and not eating animals and debunking the myths about not eating animals. I thought it was the right thing to do. And so uh, the, the, I will say I made a grave mistake at the time. And I, uh, I got the advice of a, a friend who was a former uh, literary agent, but I did not hire an agent. And mm. I should have. So my contracts for my books, I will be very honest, are very poor. And I do not benefit very much from them at all. Uh, so, so that was the potential. I mean, you know, look, you don't really make a lot of money as a writer, as an author anyway, unless the book sells really well. Most people make the money on the speaking engagements and kind of offshoots of the book, but, uh, but I still could have done better. And, uh, and so that's, you know, that's, it is what it is, but that's how the book started. And so really loved writing the process of writing the joy of vegan baking, really enjoyed it. I was very involved in the whole creative process. And so that kept now, so there's another revenue stream. So now I've got the books. Now I've got the the cooking classes I'm doing. And by then I had already started a membership program for the podcast. So when I realized that this is a value for value, that people are willing to pay for something they really value, that's when I started a membership program. And so by then I was calling myself Compassionate Cooks. It was an LLC. Uh, so I was Compassionate Cooks. In fact, I still am Compassionate Cooks LLC. That is still the LLC under which I operate, but I don't call my, I don't, that's not my public facing name anymore. Uh, Cause I, I felt too narrow in terms of the work that I do, it, it mm. served itself right at the time, but it's still the LLC just because it's easier than changing the LLC. There's no reason to change it at this point. Um, so I was an LLC and that's when I started a membership program. So when, so, you know, kind of NPR model, right? National Public Radio, you, if you're enjoying this program, you want to be a member, you get some perks in, in exchange. So absolutely Patreon before Patreon, but it's the, it's the, it's the National Public Radio model. And that's what I was modeling myself after. So you were basically saying, you know, give me money if you think that what I'm providing to you for free is valuable to you in the same way that your NPR station does that. And um, then were people just sending you checks in the mail? Were they paying you through PayPal? Like, how are you actually collecting those type of membership dollars? Yeah, there was some mechanism before PayPal, but then it started being PayPal. So it was okay. PayPal for a long time. In fact, I still have some people who are regular subscribers from on PayPal, even though I've been using Patreon. When Patreon came along, it was a really good model for for the for what I had already been doing. It it was perfect. So I do use Patreon now. And uh, but yeah, that's what it was. It was through PayPal and I had, you know, different systems set up and it became again, the it, the business side of it is not my favorite part of it. Um, because again, someone else would have run with that and made some really robust, you know, revenue minded focused plan that I just didn't because I just wanted to keep creating the content and I just wanted to keep creating the work that I was doing. So, um, so that's morphed into different things, but that still stands. And so the, the Patreon supporters most, so aside from the trips that we're going to talk about now, mm-hmm. uh, the, aside from the trips, the, my pay, my support is is primarily like I would not be able to do to just spend my days creating content and researching and writing if it weren't for my Patreon supporters. It is what enables me to not have to go get a job. 
like, literally, because, um, and, and that's the thing is like, when people say $5 makes a difference, $10 makes a difference. It's really true because when it's cumulative, it, it all adds up. And so I'm very grateful and I mean it. And when I tell my podcast listeners that this is a listener supported podcast, that I don't have sponsors, I've had sponsorships in the past, but it just doesn't feel right for me. It just doesn't feel right for me. There's too much time that has to be spent on you know, the contact with the company and what they want you to say. And, 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 you know, I would only work with organizations and companies I believed in. So that wasn't a problem. I had no ethical like qualms at all, but it just, I just prefer to just be beholden to me and my listeners. That's just what makes sense for me. Mm-hmm. And so now you are having this Patreon uh, support that's coming into you, and you also have some book money that's coming into you. And was there something else before the trips that was also a source of revenue for you aside from those two? Yeah, little bits of things here and there. Some, I'm trying to think what else it would have been. Oh, some speaking engagements. I mean, I would, mm-hmm. you know, but you know, I, I, I do so many for free, but there would be, uh, there would be some, and I'd have help with my assistant who would reach out and again, value for value, right? This is my mm-hmm. time. This is my expertise. And so value for value, there were some, uh, speaking engagements, um, a, a bit of that. I, um, I stopped teaching the cooking classes uh, to focus on the writing and the cooking classes are laborious. It's a lot of work to love, you know, to prep in advance, to make the arrangements, to rent the space. It's very costly to rent the space, prep all the food. You know, my angel of a husband would help me load up the car. Then I would hmm. drive to whatever location it was, whether it was Santa Rosa or Oakland. I'm here in Oakland, California. Uh, and then unload the car. And I always had amazing helpers in the classes, but then teach the class. I taught for three hours at a time, which was a little insane. I don't know why they were three hour long classes. And then cleaning everything up and then putting everything back in the car and then coming home. It was a lot of work. If I had maybe a studio where everything was there all the time, it would make more sense. So I stopped teaching the cooking classes. And so what was happening, I, mean, I, I taught for 10 years. I stopped teaching for Dr. McDougal maybe a couple years ago. So I, I taught those ongoing, but my classes lasted about 10 years just because, like I said, they were just too much work. And, uh, and so then I start. so then I, um, you know, one of my passions has always been travel. I love to travel and my husband does as well. And so we started traveling with, uh, okay, no, I know what it was. There was an, there, so we love to travel, but then there was a, a company who asked if I would host a trip and to Italy and that I would get the people and they would, you know, and then, and they would run the trip. They would, cause I'm, I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to create the whole itinerary, even though I do enjoy doing that when we do our own trips. I, that's not my that's not where I want to spend my time. So it was a good partnership uh, in terms of, you know, I, I got a little, you know, basically a speaking engagement, if you want to call it that, for hosting the trip. And then, uh, and then I, you know, reached out to my folks, both on my mailing list, because by now I've built up a mailing list and trust, uh, and now followers on social media, because now obviously tapping into the, you know, the social media world. And, uh, and we went to Italy and we, uh, we had, we had a great time. <laughs> and the f- two, two people who I was friends with, they were actually, um, podcast listeners who became vegan from the podcast. And one of them, her name is Bridie. She started helping me. This was years, years before the Italy trip. She was already a volunteer for me. And, uh, and she was a volunteer for me answering my love letters. That's what her job was, was the love letters that I would receive. She would respond. And that's too, that's, that's, uh, too seductive here to not uh, interrupt you, Colleen. So when you say love letters, you mean people who are sending you mail saying they really like you, or you mean actual love letters <laughs> from people who are interested in dating you. <laughs> oh gosh, no. It wasn't like a like my own Tinder, like no. Yeah. So it not, was um <laughs> not potential suitors then, just people who really who are fans of your work. Yeah, like so we called them love letters and uh because that's what they were. They were just filled with with just sweet, mm-hmm. you know, gratitude and their stories of transformation who would people who had listened to the podcast or by this time read my books and or had been to my classes. I mean, I still you know 
I, I still talk to people who were in, in my cooking classes back in, mm. you know, 2002. I mean, so it's pretty, it's pretty amazing. So yeah, so I would get these incredible letters from people. And I, you know, I, again, just in terms of bandwidth, I just, I, Bridie became the person who in her own voice would respond saying, thank you so much. And I saw all of them and I, um, and I'm, I'm still, you know, I, it's an amazing thing. So Bridie was a friend and a, and a volunteer and they came on the trip. Now, Bridie and Seb had had a background in tour leading in travel and as travel tour leaders. Uh, and so as we started traveling together, they started planting the seed that we could create these trips on our own and create exactly the kind of trip we wanted. The people I had done, the, I did two Italy trips and Brady and Seb came on both. And the people I had, who had organized the trip, it wasn't the right fit for me. My brand, my name, the trust I have with the people who follow me, it's sacred to me. And if I'm going to put my name on something, I want to control it and I want to uh, manage it in a way that I can stand by it. So Bridie and Seb at that point were trusted friends and we had the same, like they knew my brand really well and we had the same ideas of what it looked like to create an incredible trip. And so we started traveling more together and they started planting the seed of doing our own trips together. And it was when we were in Rwanda in 2016 that Seb, Bridie and Seb are their names, said, we, look, we need to do a Rwanda trip. And I thought, that's crazy. It's expensive to go to Rwanda. Like people aren't going to pay this. Like, he's like, yes, they will it's again, value for value. They'd be traveling with you, seeing gorillas, you know, mountain gorillas. Diane Fossey had been my hero for so many years, seeing chimpanzees and everything that we had done that made this trip so incredible. And so, um, we've looked, what have we got to lose? Seb said, listen, I'm going to put together a Thailand trip. They lived in Thailand at the time. Let's see how it goes. Let's see if you can fill it up. Let's see what it looks like. Let's see how the trip goes. And we can go from there. The trip sold out in two weeks. Wow. The trip to Thailand. And it was such a phenomenal success that the people who were on that trip heard us talking about Rwanda and said, if you put together a Rwanda trip, we will, <laughs> we will come. And so that's how it started. And uh, we put together the Rwanda trip. It sold out in two days. And it was mostly from people who had come to Thailand. We had also done a Vietnam trip. And, um, and all these trips revolve around, you know, incredible travel. And it's, it's high-end travel. It's really lovely high-end travel. We obviously take care of all of the food and make sure people get the most high-end vegan food wherever we travel. And then there's a lot um, around, obviously, local culture and people, but also animal advocacy and some kind of animal protection wherever we go. And so uh, we did Thailand, Vietnam, we did Rwanda. And because Rwanda sold out so quickly, we uh, added another one and that one sold out in a few weeks. So um, we've continued to do that. And we've been to Alsace in France um, a couple times. And this year, right now, as I speak to you, I'm supposed to be in Dordogne, France on another CPG trip. We call them CPG trips, Colleen Patrick Goudreau, but it's really organized by World Vegan Travel, Bridie and Seb, who are incredible, and um, and I'm the host. And so it's been a wonderful partnership. And again, yes, a realization that you can do what you love and the money does follow because it's value for value. And so now with COVID, we're just waiting to see what's happening with everything. Um, we will postpone uh, this trip the one that we're supposed to be in uh, France uh, doing right now. But we also have a Botswana trip planned for December. Uh, this is 2020. So fingers crossed that will that will be a go. But that is the revenue that we were talking about before. And um, mm -hmm. it's been incredible. And, and am I right? That's your number one source of revenue is, is money that you make from organizing these trips. Yeah, relatively speaking. I mean, yes. So it would be the trips first, the Patreon second. Um, and now there's another revenue stream, which, <laughs> which also came out of COVID and I didn't expect to happen. And that's just been a huge, um, huge help because of, we can't do the trips right now. And it, so when you look at this entire constellation of things that you're doing, Colleen, you have these varied sources of revenue. Um, do you have staff who are working with you? I know you, you've referred to an assistant, but I think you mentioned that she's a volunteer. Uh, are there people who work for you helping you with any of this, or are you really the only paid person in the CPG operation? 
Well, right. So I'm the only paid person in the sense that I don't have employees and anybody who does help me, I do pay as a contractor. So any help that I need for podcast editing, for video editing, for now segue to the online cooking classes I'm teaching that happened out of COVID. I started teaching online cooking classes out of my kitchen has been incredible. And Danielle um, is a, is a woman who has helped me for, um, gosh, I don't know, 15 years. She used to help me in the cooking classes. She now helps me with the online cooking classes. I should say there was one bit of revenue I forgot, um, Paul, is I started hosting conferences. Mm. Uh, right. So, um, so I had the, uh, what I was calling uh, compassion in action, uh, conferences and that they were being hosted here in Oakland. Uh, the last one was the joyful vegan conference and that was hosted online. It was actually right before COVID. It was, ho- I just decided to host it online because my latest book came out and I was doing a book tour that got canceled obviously. But in the end, I just wasn't able to organize a conference. Uh, so, uh, the conference was, the conferences were another small stream. Again, these are all small, but they're all, but they add up to enable me to, you know, have a salary. So any help that I get doing any of these things, I, I pay people as contractors and the rest is done by me. Okay. And when you say contractors, I, I presume most of that you're doing it through Fiverr, through Upwork, like, or are you, are these people who you personally know? Uh, all of the above. Oh, okay. Cool. Yeah, I've used um, I've used a lot of uh, Fiverr and Upwork uh, folks who are making a a good living from from things that I've done, and I've wondered about it, like in terms of the ethics, because you know people will say, oh well, you know, isn't it better? You know, you want to hire local, and and you know, you're paying lower wages to people because they live in other parts of the world, like in, in let's say in Bangladesh. And which is uh, where I have hired people from before. And Peter Singer had a pretty interesting commentary on this. So Peter Singer is the uh, author of Animal Liberation and, and The Life You Can Save and many other uh, very important books. And he basically said he thinks that it's actually ethically preferable to give some of your money to people who are living in developing countries because the money goes so much further for them. And that people who are, uh, who are living, let's say, in, in Bangladesh, uh, you paying them to, let's say, do some graphic design or, or podcast editing, et cetera, is actually doing better than if you were to hire somebody locally uh, because they need the money a lot more, essentially. Have, have you ever thought about that, Colleen? For sure. And I think it really depends because I've also used organizations that have given me VAs of virtual assistants. So I've worked with organizations and they, uh, you know, they basically are the contractors for the VAs. So I've used them as well. So to be clear, like it's, I I do have support. It's just done through all, um, all these different mechanisms. Uh, And, and yeah, in the end, I tend to uh, I tend to hire in the in the U.S. mostly because of the time zone. So mm. it depends on what it is. If I'm working with a VA and we have to communicate a lot, I'd rather work with someone who is at least in the United States or North America. I mean, like just at least someone who's in like the t- same time zone or maybe three hours difference max. I have worked with people who've done different kinds of technical things for me. And because I don't need to talk to them you know, communicate with them other than giving them direction for the technological needs I have. They can be anywhere. And so I do think about that. And I I do think there's a value to to both. And so Hmm. it's really a matter of what your, what your needs are. Yeah. Cool. Well, it's an impressive story, Colleen. And as somebody who has been your friend for, uh, I feel like about two decades, um, I, I feel like I there's a lot that I didn't know about what you're doing. So for me, it's, it's very enlightening just to learn about the not only the varied revenue streams, but also the story of really how this all came to be. So Colleen, if there are people who are looking at your story and realizing, you know, maybe I should be a solopreneur. Maybe I don't need to go work for an organization or start my own company and raise a bunch of venture capital and bring on all these employees. Maybe I can start a one-person business, essentially. Uh, Are there any resources that have been helpful for you that you would recommend to them? So whether books or speeches or anything else that you think have been a source of, of either inspiration or information for you? I want to say there is, but I, I really struggle because like I said, my, my work started as an advocate and I, and I, and I, I, if I were to, if I, if I were to, if I were to have set out to create a business, I would have done things a little differently. 
And that's not to say that I would have become, you know, I would have gotten an MBA because it's just not my, in, I'm not interested in that, but I would have created more of a plan, uh, a, literally a business plan. I mean, and, and I, and I do in a way, I mean, I create goals for myself every year and every, every day, <laughs> every day I have my goals and every week I have my goals and every year I have my goals. So I've always been very structured and very self-disciplined and very driven. So those are characteristics that I would say, if you are interested in being a solopreneur, then those are going to be your aid. If you want to do more business things, I really just really encourage people to just go and become an expert in that field and become an expert. If you want to lead an organization, please go get leadership training. I think it's one of the, (laughs) I think we can all do better in terms of leadership uh, because so many, especially in the field of animal advocacy or veganism, especially from a nonprofit perspective, it tends to be built by visionaries and they're not necessarily good leaders. And so just know what your weak points are and go strengthen them and know what your strong points are and just use them. Mm. I didn't set out to do this uh, as a business. I set out to manifest the vision I had for a compassionate world. And this is what it looks like for me based on what I love and what I'm good at. So for me, like an early influence was someone like Joseph Campbell. I mean, I, I literally was drawn to that that, you know, the power of myth, the power of the, the hero's journey, like going, following your bliss. And it sounds so woo-woo and I'm not into woo-woo at all. Um, but there really is something to follow your gut, trust yourself. There were many, many opportunities along the way I could have done things differently, but I stayed true to what my vision was and has been and just really trust that I'm doing the right thing. And I'm not... <laughs> You know, I'm not a millionaire. I'm not, you know, but I'm very happy and I'm very grateful to do work that I, that I feel is meaningful, certainly gives meaning to me. And, you know, from what I've heard, I'm very grateful that I feel like it's given meaning to others. Well, that's great. And uh, rest assured, Colleen, you are not the only person who has cited Joseph Campbell as a source of inspiration for you on this very podcast. Yeah. Yeah, right on. Um, so then finally, you know, there are a lot of ideas, right? Like you, the number of paths that are open to us are really are, are seemingly infinite. You chose this path, but are there other things that you hope that people might do? Maybe other companies they might start or whether it be a one person company or a multi-person company that you hope that they will start to help do something good in the world, whether for animals or for the planet or for frankly, anything that would make the world a better place? Mm, yeah, that's always the question, right? Like if I had this much money, what would I do? Or if I didn't have to do this, what would I do? Um, oh gosh, there's a lot. Maybe, of yeah. Maybe not what you would do, but maybe, yeah. but also, you know, if there, are there any companies that you wish existed that didn't exist? Yeah. Right. What I want someone else to do. Definitely. Yeah. I, these were things I'd want someone else to do. Um, <laughs> yeah. So one thing, one thing, well, this is too much of a fantasy. I definitely want a teleportation, um, uh, reality to happen because I really hate the resources and the time it takes to get from point A to point B. So if we could just shrink that, that would be awesome. So if someone could go and make that happen. So, so it, would be, it would not only be teleportation, it would be teleportation that was lower in resource usage, I see. So it would, it would right. actually find some way to replicate you somewhere else for very few resources. All right. That's, that's, a, that's a good one. I think it could happen, right? Wasn't there like the vacuum train that Elon Musk, I think, was envisioning at one point? Uh, I mean, look, let's just get high-speed rail in California I mean, like, <laughs> yeah. or in the United States. Like, that's ridiculous. Let's get some high-speed rail. Yes. So, um, yeah, so that is definitely more. something for sure. Um, I would, uh, yeah. So, I mean, when, it, when I think of what I think would be a real benefit to uh, animals for sure. And to the planet is, and, and I have cats. I would love to see cultured meat for cats. I would love to see a cultured meat, uh, meat for, for cats. I mean, obviously it could be for dogs as well, but dogs do so well on a plant-based diet, but cats do not. And I am not persuaded by any of the current foods that are out there, vegan foods for cats. So, uh, because it's just not the same, it's just not the same protein and just adding the taurine just doesn't, it's just, it, it, I'm not convinced. And so I'd love to see a cultured meat, uh, cat food. And I, I can't imagine it's that far away. I just have to believe that there are really good, smart people who probably have been on this podcast, probably will be on this podcast, <laughs> uh, who are already trying to solve that, but I will be their first customer if that happens. 
<laughs> All right. Very good. And you're right. Uh, Ryan Bethancourt from Wild Earth Pets has been on the podcast before and talked a little bit about their aspirations to create some type of uh, queen meat cat food as well. Also, not on the podcast, but um, there's a company called Bond, which is a startup in uh, Colorado that has the vision of doing uh, queen meat pet food. And they're starting out with these like uh, dog bars, like kind of like protein bars for dogs that uh, don't have any cultured meat in them. They're based on like sweet potato and, and um, nutritional yeast, I believe. I, I did get some of them for my dog, Eddie, and he really enjoyed them. <laughs> but I, I think that that is their, um, that's like their pathway toward, toward trying to raise funds to actually move forward and, and do some queen meat pet food as well. So uh, there's a, a big debate within the queen meat community about that. Like what, what's the best way to introduce such products in the beginning? Like do, you know, you want people to eat it and if they think, oh, this is like pet food, are they going to want it themselves? Uh, also, sure. there, also, there's a concern about the price point. You know, pet food is like the, the lowest priced meat usually. Um, and so, uh, like, because queen meat is so much more expensive than conventional meat and will be for a long time, like, where is the best place to start? Would it be in, in competing, like, with the foie gras of the world, which are very expensive per ounce, or, or the pet food? So, anyway, I, I too agree. I mean, a huge number of animals are used for both dog and cat food, and uh, there has to be some type of a solution there. So, I agree. Would love to see it, and uh, I hope it comes to fruition soon. Um, but I am, am sadly not holding my breath that it's going to be that but I, mm. I, I hope that my uh, I, I hope that my non-held breath it turns out to be in vain. It <laughs> um, was so eloquent. <laughs> thank you. I had to think about it there for a second to figure out we say it the exact right way. Um, but Colleen, I, I really appreciate everything that you're doing. You have been a source of, of inspiration for me. I know that you have been for my wife, Tony, as well. I've told you many times that my mom loves your cookbooks and she has regularly used the joy of, be of vegan baking, for example. And so I'm grateful to all of your Patreon supporters who have kept this thing afloat and to the people going on the CPG trips and all that so that you can continue putting out such wonderful resources in the world to help make it a kinder, more compassionate place. So I'm grateful to you and to all of those people making it possible. And I will be rooting for you to break a leg the next time you get to go out and uh, do some presentation somewhere. Thank you, Paul. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening. We hope you found use in this episode. If so, don't keep it to yourself. Please leave us a five-star rating on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. And as always, we hope you will be in the business of doing good.